Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Bobby Tudor, CEO of Artemides Energy Partners and Chairman of the Houston Energy Transition Initiative. Many of you probably already know Bobby in his previous role as founder and CDO, CEO of Tudor Pickering and Holt and Company. And we will talk about we will talk about Bobby's career to start, but we are going to focus on Houston, on the energy transition, and how Houston can be and continue to be the energy capital of the world. So let's get into it. Bobby, thank you for joining me today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background, a quick introduction to the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, or HEDI for short. Well, thank you. Thank you, Joe. And thanks for having me. Very happy to, to be with you. Um, I'm an energy finance person by background. I spent 20 years at Goldman Sachs uh, in the corporate finance department working in the energy business uh, in New York and Houston and London. And um, I left Goldman after 20 years um, to start TPH. And we started TPH in, in uh, early 2007 with the idea that we were going to build a, a true kind of fit for purpose energy investment banking and asset management uh, business. And, uh, and that's what, that's what we did. And so uh, we, we merged that business into Perella Weinberg partners a New York based investment bank in 2016. And I retired from the firm at the end of this last calendar year and have now set up Artemis energy partners, which is, which is an investing an investing platform for my own capital. Um, so that's my that's my history. Grew up in Louisiana. Went to Rice University as an undergrad and Tulane Law School, and had a, have had a career in investment banking. Uh, with regard to Hedy, uh, Hedy uh, is the Houston Energy Transition Initiative. It's under the umbrella of the Greater Houston Partnership. The Greater Houston Partnership is is think of it as the the regional chamber of commerce on steroids, <laughs> uh, and the primary economic development arm for for our region. And, uh, and Hedy was formed under that um, umbrella uh, to provide a, a forum and a level of connectivity for our companies as they uh, embark on participating in this global energy transition that we're now in the, in the quite early stages of. And the idea is we want to make sure that we come when we come out on the, the back end of this, whether it's 20 years from now or 40 years from now or 80 years from now, that Houston continues to be the energy capital of the world that it is today. That's great. Thank you for that introduction. And I do want to really dig into Hedy. First, though, I think it it's very, I, I really like your background. And I've heard your background story on some other podcasts and, and other places. And I think it's really valuable and kind of sets a good tone for where we all want Houston to be and the future and, and that mindset that you need going into the energy transition. So for those that don't know, can you give a the the story of the founding of TPH and kind of where and what y'all were thinking about as you were as you were building up that investment firm? Well, when I when I left Goldman Sachs, it, it was with a, a quite specific idea that I wanted a, a second professional chapter, and I thought there was a terrific opportunity to to build an energy focused investment bank. The nature of of investment banking had changed over the course of my career at at Goldman Sachs in the sense that 
energy expertise was becoming a must-have rather than a nice-to-have uh, when it when it came to kind of banking skills, and and the energy industry particularly lends itself to that since since uh, kind of science and 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 geopolitics are are ultimately core to the corporate finance judgments that are that are made in the energy business. And so uh, I felt there was a great opportunity there. I was introduced by a client to Dan Pickering and and Dan had started an energy research platform. Uh, And and so Dan and I agreed to throw in together with the idea that we were gonna build a a first rate energy investment bank that had both, both research capital raising and advisory components of it. And then we also intended later to add an asset management business. Um, uh, I then went to uh, Maynard Holt, who was uh, an old Goldman colleague of, of mine and asked ask Maynard to to join us. And then the three of us really, with, with a bunch of other people, by the way, um, <laughs> uh, including Dan's early partners at Pickering Energy Partners and Ali Pruner, our CFO and, and others, we, we started heading down the road in 2007 towards building a really first-rate energy-focused investment bank here in, in Houston. So we went from a standing start to, to being an energy industry leader in investment banking in a relatively short period of time. I think in some sense, better to be lucky than good. We really caught the shale wave just right. Uh, we developed expertise in that area uh, just, just as it was sort of exploding with regard to levels of, of activity. And we were able to attract really fantastic people and built a built a, a unique culture in the firm, and ultimately built a really a really fine business. So it was a, a very very kind of satisfying uh, experience, I think, for all of us involved. Uh, and the firm is still going and and doing very well. And uh, the founders, Dan and and Maynard and I, have all moved on to our next chapter. And remind me when. When did TPH start? When was that transition from Goldman into this this new role? I left Goldman um, in early 2006, um, and we started uh, TPH in early 2007. Uh, so the firm is now you know 15 years old uh, or so. Uh, and um, it's about 150 people and with offices in in uh, Calgary and New York and London uh, and Houston and uh, and part of a, a bigger firm now, uh, Perella Weinberg Partners. So you built this very successful energy-focused investment firm, Bank, in a very tumultuous time. Starting in 2006, I, I remember the recession of 2008 that was the first downturn that i remember in the oil and gas industry and i think since then there have been multiple more that was also when i started really focusing in on geothermal and seeing renewable energy for what it was and and i i think the first major renewable energy push coming from the coming from the stimulus um i, I forget what it was called the America's Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2008 or 2009, and there there were significant amounts of funding going to renewables then. So most of these companies out there nowadays, you're you're lucky to survive one major market event or one major market downturn, and then you see all this consolidation. Whereas TPH made it through, made it through multiple, including the riding the shale revolution, seeing all of this change and this almost back and forth in oil and gas and with a strong push for renewables and even now today, a a very strong push, which is where we're going next. But I think there's there's some type of of strong foundational truth that that has to be able to be gotten from that story of TPH. So I guess that's a long way of saying, what is that? How did you do it? What is that thing that we should all learn from from your story? Well, per- perhaps the thing to, to learn is that um, a really deep understanding of energy markets um, is 
um, helpful and distinguishing and necessary uh, when it comes to giving good advice, whether the, whether the advice is going to investors or to CEOs or to private equity firms or to governments or, or you name it. And energy is a, is a complicated business uh, on sort of many levels, um, but it's also a commodity business on many levels. So uh, it, it's just this really unique intersection of science and economics and geopolitics um, and 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 thus you you kind of got to be deep in it and so I would say if there's fun foundational truth around and what we did is that we were very deep you know our our kind of un- understanding of the energy business both at a individual asset level and then a much more macro level, uh, was really important, and, uh, and and I think distinguishing and the reason we were able to take so much market share so quickly. Those skills um, are uh, probably more important today than they've ever been, uh, because the energy business is continuing to to change and change quite rapidly, uh, and and hence. Um, our focus here in in Houston and and this region around the energy transition and what the implications are for our employment, for our community, for our companies, uh, for the environment, and for the world. Uh, and and so the foundational truth of it's important to be deep has never been more important. Has that that foundational truth has never been more important than it is today. Yep, I think that is that's great great knowledge and great insight that we now need to bring into the energy transition and here focused in on Houston and the energy transition initiative, Hedy. So switching gears a little bit, what is the, that main idea behind, behind Hedy? Why was it started and what are those primary goals? Well, I was the I was the chairman of the Greater Houston Partnership in in um, in 2020, and the um, one, one the perk of being the chairman of the partnership is you get to choose the topic of um, uh, of emphasis for for your chairmanship period, and I chose the energy transition, and I, I chose the energy transition because even as recently as two years ago. It was not a topic that was really talked about much in Houston, sort of in polite company, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> there was there was some sense that if you were really uh, you know a believer in the energy transition or engaged in the energy transition, that you were somehow kind of disloyal. And uh, I never viewed it that way uh, at all, uh, actually. Um, and and I felt we needed to kind of take it on head head on in Houston for for several reasons. One is, is that we had a remarkable period of growth here in our region. From you know you, you mentioned two thousand eight as a bit of a uh, you know watershed year. From from two thousand eight to two thousand and eighteen, Greater Houston was the fastest growing major metro in America by a long shot, and I think Dallas Fort Worth was second. The reason we grew so much faster than the rest of the com- country was quite simply that we were in the shale revolution. We were highly leveraged to that shale revolution in Houston because of the nature of our companies. And uh, U.S. oil production went from 5 million barrels to 12 million barrels during that period of time. It was just an explosive and unprecedented period of, of growth for the industries. And our region was the was the great beneficiary uh, of that. Uh, today, we are producing about the same number of barrels that that uh, we were, you know, two or three years ago. And while we would expect there to continue to be some growth in in oil and gas production, particularly in gas, uh, less so in oil, we think that over the course of the next decade, that growth is going to level out and then start to decline, decline, albeit quite quite slowly. At the same time, we, we've had uh, highly improving efficiencies in the business so that we can produce the same amount of hydrocarbons with many, many fewer people. So today, we're producing about the same number of barrels of oil uh, that we were 
three years ago, but we have 20% less people doing it. And the message in that is that the likelihood that we're going to have huge job growth and huge new company formation associated with the traditional fossil fuel business in, in our region in the next decade or two, the likelihood of that happening is quite low. And as I go around and talk to what I call incumbent energy industry executives, so upstream oil and gas companies, um, petrochemical companies, oil fill services companies, pipeline companies, et cetera, I rarely get any pushback on that. People would say, yeah, we expect our business will be uh, important for quite some time and a really good business and a highly cash generative business, but we are highly unlikely to have the same sort of growth in the business, whether that's measured by top line growth or by employment growth in the region, uh, that we're, we're highly unlikely to have that in the next couple of decades. So you, you, you sort of start with that. Uh, with with job growth being a good proxy for economic vitality and prosperity. The second part of this is that we have a significant issue globally, uh, and, and that is climate change. And uh, we have a pressing need to dramatically lower our CO2 emissions and have energy systems that are that are much much cleaner and and more sustainable uh, for the future and it's I, I posit that 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 transition is highly unlikely to happen without Houston and the incumbent energy industry being right in the middle of it uh, we have the talent the people the expertise the infrastructure the finance knowledge, all of the elements that are you know, required for a successful transition so that we can solve this dual challenge of, of providing the world with, with clean, reliable, and affordable ener- energy, while at the same time drastically lowering our CO2 emissions, that dual challenge uh, is highly unlikely to happen without the incumbent industry being right in the middle of it. So you put those two things together, uh, you know, my, my line was we have both a responsibility in Houston and a fantastic opportunity in Houston uh, to be uh, um, a leader in, the, in this energy transition, not just a partner and certainly not an impediment. Uh, we need to be a leader. And I'm very happy to say that our companies are, are highly bought into that. Uh, and have their shoulder to the wheel and are working very hard to solve these dual challenges. Yep, I agree completely. And I think coming from my perspective, being in the geothermal industry, you see while it is, it's almost a sister industry, we are, we're drilling wells, we're extracting energy from the subsurface. It's very similar in those regards, but you can see all of the value that is being added from, from as you put it, the incumbent energy industry where there are significant investments going in and there are also significant advancements going into geothermal coming from, coming from both service companies and also large operators. And I think it's it's also coming from the you can see that that value and the recognition of that value from from the government i think it it'll by the time this airs there will have been several different discussions that have occurred recently with with the government bringing in the oil and gas industry to advance enhanced geothermal systems and there's current um funding opportunities looking at how to bring oil and gas knowledge into geothermal to ultimately make it move faster. Right. And the the whole point of, of all of this is that the most effective approach is likely to be a portfolio approach, which, which is to say it's going to be some completely new technologies. It's going to be some technologies that are out there now and just aren't quite yet economic. It's going to be the challenges of scaling all of that up. Uh, It's going to be both working within our current energy systems, but also developing new energy systems. So I'm I'm a big believer 
that it's going to take kind of all of that for us to ultimately get to to where we need to go. And geothermal is is one you know one good example. Yep. So who is part of Hedy? So Hedy, uh, as I said, it's under the umbrella of the Greater Houston Partnership. Our executive director is a full time. Uh, employee of the Greater Houston Partnership. Her name is her, her, her name is Jane Stricker, and Jane joined us from from BP uh, and has a long history in uh, in this space. Um, in 2016, the National Petroleum Council, of, of which I'm a, a board member, was commissioned by the Secretary of Energy uh, uh, at the time, er- Ernie Moniz, to um, uh, to do a big study on CCUS, and uh, and Jane was the the key staff person at BP who who led that led that study and the ultimate publication of that uh, at the National Petroleum Council. So anyway, Jane uh, Jane joined us at the partnership, and she has a team around her. Uh, I I chair the the board. I have two vice chairs, Scott Nyquist, who is a longtime. McKinsey partner in, in energy in the Houston office and Eric Mullins, uh, who uh, worked with me at Goldman Sachs and is, is now the CEO of Lime Rock Resources. Um, and um, we, we also have a steering committee of approximately 20 of our largest, most important energy companies in Houston. And it ranges from, uh, you know, ExxonMobil and Shell and, and uh, Schlumberger, and Dow and Lyondell and Enbridge and uh, Halliburton, uh, Sonova, the solar company, Centerpoint, are one of our, our big utilities. NRG, NRG, the the, the power generator, um, Calpine, one of the largest generation companies in the country, etc. So, a lot of our our biggest, most important companies are on our steering committee. It's all all industrial firms. And we work closely with that steering committee to uh, coordinate coordinate our, our activities in, in the space. And one of the most valuable things that that we do is connect the dots uh, for for these companies. So, for example, if there's a if there's a whiz bang new startup um, uh, business that needs to run a pilot uh, to to try out the new technology, we can help connect them. To one of these companies, one of one of our larger companies, or if one of our larger companies uh, has a big R and D project on on something where they ultimately need help on a poli- on the policy front or connectivity to capital, we try to help them do that. So we've come up with a strategy with the help of McKinsey. We've come up with with, with a strategy for the region. Our steering committee is the primary body to help us implement that. And then we're also uh, formed a, a larger advisory committee that includes our financial institutions, our academic institutions, our governmental institutions, a bunch of our not-for-profits, the environmental community, um, our, our, um, our philanthropists, et cetera, who, who also are engaged. Uh, and so it, it's really an all-hands-on-deck sort of approach with the Greater Houston Partnership and, and Hedy being the convening body. And uh, it's got a lot of momentum and a lot of activity, and we're very excited about it. That sounds very exciting. And it reminds me just everything that you've said there with the different partners and bringing in industry and universities and nonprofit reminds me very much of a consortium model to to move things forward. I'm curious with, I guess, two questions. How long has Hedy been a an initiative? And have you seen that acceleration of new technology and new growth to this point? Yeah. We're, so we're about one year old as, as an initiative, and we've seen tremendous growth. And that growth can be measured uh, in a in a range of ways. So, for example, uh, Greentown Labs, which is the largest climate tech accelerator in North America, headquartered in Boston, uh, at the at the bequest of <laughs> of the Greater Houston Partnership, opened uh, opened a their their second uh, office, if you will, in Houston about eighteen months ago. Um, they now have sixty climate tech oriented companies working in their accelerator. 
Uh, it took them a year to get to 60 companies. It took them six years to get to 60 companies in Boston. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just an explosive level of activity. And that's on the kind of startup venture, new technology, innovation front. If you look at what our big companies are doing, whether it's the big petrochem companies, our super major oil companies, our power companies, et cetera, they are all increasingly allocating both R&D dollars and project dollars to uh, new technologies focused on ultimately lowering CO2 emissions. And that ranges from hydrogen to, to CCUS to electrification of their own operations uh, and, you know, on and on and on. And I think one of the things that probably the broader world doesn't understand is that if you add it up, every true R&D capital dollar that's going into this space in, in the U.S., there is likely more of that happening in Houston, Texas than anywhere else, including the Bay Area, including Boston, you name it, right? It just tends to happen within our big companies, and so it's not really visible to the world. So Schlumberger or Baker Hughes, for example, are extraordinarily focused and and active uh, uh, active in this in this space. The same would be true of Shell, or of Exxon Mobil, or of of BP, or you know Lion Dell, or Dow, or or you name it. So there's an extraordinary level of activity. There's a lot of new company formation happening uh, around it, uh, and the the executives of these companies are focused on it at the very highest level. So if you are the CEO of one of these 20 largest energy companies in Houston, uh, what your company is doing in this space every day really matters to you. Now, it's important to to restate that we have a dual challenge here. And the the challenge is to provide reliable, affordable, secure energy today, (laughs) while at the same time driving down CO2 emissions uh, dramatically. And, uh, And to do the former... We still need uh, efficient and ever cleaner fossil fuel production. And that means that our upstream companies and our midstream companies that move that oil and gas around and store it and transport it, our services companies that, that you know, provide the, the technology and the manpower to get the stuff out of the ground, those companies are very, very important to us. They're important to the dual challenge. They're important to Houston and will continue to be. Some of them... We'll pivot what they're doing a bit and, and spend increasing amounts of capital on new things that historically have not been part of their core business. Some will not. And that's absolutely okay because we need those ones uh, who are focused on their traditional business of, of producing hydrocarbons. We need them to do that. And we need them to do it uh, you know, more cleanly and more efficiently, but we, we, the world needs it. And there's nothing like what we've seen in Europe in the past six months to remind us that the bumps in the road associated with this energy transition can be, can be very, very violent. And, and thus it's important that we have an incumbent industry that continues to be uh, effective and respected and, and provided with the capital that it, it needs uh, to to do its job as well. Yep, I completely agree, and i th- I think that the way that we approach the energy transition is is difficult in that regard because we do have this incumbent industry, we have this new budding low carbon energy industry, but in order to make that that transition and to make it as smooth as possible, I think there are technical aspects for both that need to be, I guess, need to be worked on and need to be developed kind of at the same time so right. that they build that bridge across. And as, as you point out, there are many different social aspects to making that bridge and making it a safe, reliable, resilient bridge for everybody. So with, with that in mind, what are some of those main topics or main things that that Hetty is focusing on with the energy transition? Well, uh, we sort of start with the areas where we feel like that, that here in Houston and in our region, we have, in some sense, a competitive advantage. And uh, examples of that would be, would be CCUS, 
uh, and, and hydrogen. Um, I'm a big believer in the importance of CCUS uh, in, in driving down CO2 emissions. And the reason I'm such a believer is that uh, completely replumbing the world's energy systems with new infrastructure is extraordinarily expensive and will take a long time. So to, to give you a feel, according to the IEA, to meet the goals associated with, with Paris and the Paris Climate Accords, we need to be spending about $4 trillion a year globally on all things energy transition to meet those goals between now and 2050, $4 trillion a year. We're currently spending less than a trillion a year. <laughs> right and and so we're 3 trillion a year short right now of the rate of capital required ultimately to to drive down our emissions really really dramatically and and so when i look at those numbers i i say well where's the money going to come from and and CCUS can be a really, really important part of mitigating that need from capital. If we can use our extant hydrocarbon-based systems, particularly for heavy manufacturing, right, and hard-to-abate sectors like steel and, and glass and concrete and fertilizer, uh, if we can use them but drive down CO2 emissions by, by capturing uh, those those emissions and then and then either storing them or using them for something else, then that really mitigates the capital required to solve the problem is going to uh, is going to allow us to to make more progress much more quickly. So that's an example uh, of uh, of uh, an area where we feel like we here in in Houston have a big competitive advantage. Part of it's because of the concentration of uh, industrial companies and high emitting businesses on the Houston Ship Channel. Part of it is because our companies here know how to do it already. It's technology that's well understood. Part of it is because we have good infrastructure in place and we have the ability to build the new infrastructure required to handle those emissions. So for a lot of reasons, we can and should be a leader in CCUS in, in this region. And there are multiple projects going on uh, by our member companies and by our Steerco uh, members, and and we think that that's great news. A similar story would be had around hydrogen. About sixty percent of of the nation's hydrogen dedicated pipelines are in Greater Houston, Texas. Six zero percent. You know, moving hydrogen around is tricky, right? You can't you, you can't just fill up gas pipelines with hydrogen. Uh, and so it, it, so you, you need to be able to use your extant infrastructure. Uh, you also, uh, typically, uh, are going to need, as long as the hydrogen is, is being fired from natural gas, you're also going to need to be able to capture those emissions, uh, and either store them or use them. And once again, we have an advantage in, in that in, in Houston. So all things hydrogen, both, both blue and green, uh, are, are, are key pillars for, for us. Um, you know, the capital market is a key pillar for us. Uh, Houston very much became the capital center for the global shale re re revolution. And the reason it did is that the management talent was here and the opportunities were here. And so the capital providers ultimately felt like they needed to be on the ground in Houston and right in the middle of where the action is. We want the same to be true uh, for all energy transition-oriented capital. And some of that capital is going to be sort of um, uh, repurposed, uh, which is to say, it would have traditionally have been gone into the had, would have gone into the fossil fuel industry. Now it will be more oriented towards the energy transition companies. Some of the capital will be totally new and focused on the energy transition, but. But those providers, we think, will ultimately decide that they need to be on the ground here in Houston because this is where the action is. So those are the kind of things that, that we have going on. Another really important thing is our work with our universities, where fundamental R&D and intellectual capital uh, is, is uh, important and central to what they do and ultimately central to the 
to the energy transition. So I work with Rice University and University of Houston and and UT and A and M and Prairie View. All of those all of those places have really important uh, research engines, and uh, we need those research engines focused on on the energy transition. Uh, and because a lot, a lot of progress needs to be made for many of these two new technologies to be truly economic competitive, uh, economically competitive. So, uh, we're, we're working hand in glove with our, with our, uh, university community as well on these initiatives. Hmm. Well, I, for one, am very excited about everything you're saying, everything you've laid out here for the Houston energy transition initiative. I think it, it is definitely the a a good path and it kind of sets up as as you point out sets up Houston to continue to be the energy capital of the world and and those key pillars of CCS hydrogen capital bringing those into the fold and and meeting those very large needs to make that bridge and that transition are are very important. I know that energy transition is a very big topic. So just out of curiosity with even though we've mentioned a lot, is there anything else that that perhaps you want to emphasize whether it's for Houston specifically or just kind of the energy transition other things that that you see as being something else that needs to be focused on that maybe either Hetty can't focus on or something that just isn't because you don't have enough time to work. Well, look, on. there there are lots of elements to sustainability in the energy transition, uh, and you know, not all of them reside here in, in our region, and not all of them w- would you argue, w- you know, we would we would have some kind of competitive advantage in. So, an example would be mobility, right? And and um, you know, we're not a center for automobile manufacturing. We're not a center for uh, for software and the software that that uh, really drives, for example, you know, automated cars, et cetera. Uh, and and so we're unlikely to to really emerge as as the leader in all things, you know, mobility uh, re- related. Uh, you know, robotics is another area where. Carnegie Mellon University and and uh, and Pittsburgh, uh, for for example, have been particularly strong. The Bay Area is great in robotics as as well, and robotics are really an important part of energy efficiency. Uh, and not all of that is going to happen here. So, look, you know, this is not a zero sum game, um, but we do feel like the the look the the reason. Houston is the energy capital of the world today is this is where the intellectual capacity sits. When these big problems currently facing the energy world need to be uh, attacked, they tend to be attacked by companies and scientists and leaders uh, in in Houston and, and in this region. And we need to make sure that as, as the energy world evolves, that that continues to be true. Uh, but uh, the whole world needs to take this on, right? We, we can make tremendous progress on, on all of this in Houston and in the U.S., but if the same thing isn't happening in Asia and in India uh, and in Western Europe, then it'll all be for naught, right? It's just one big atmosphere up there. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to be partners. We're good at that in Houston. We know how to work globally. Uh, one of the great advantages of, of our incumbent energy industry is that it is truly a global industry who is very comfortable doing business in, Af- in Africa and in Asia and in India, uh, and that will need to continue to be the case. So we have to have a global mindset here of, uh, of working together. I like it. That's a really good point that it really is, as you pointed, the atmosphere is just one big atmosphere up there. So we do all need to work together and push forward. With that, I want to get into my final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. That first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? 
I'm a big fan of um, an energy scientist and historian called Vaclav Smil. He's Canadian, and he's he's written several books. The, the sort of big overview, most comprehensive one is called Energy and Civilization. And it's just a sort of a, a, a really brilliant survey of the history of energy systems and, uh, and the science around all of that uh, and kind of ties it in, into where we are today. You know, Bill, Bill Gates has also written a, a great book called How to Solve the Climate Crisis. Uh, and, and Bill Gates says Vaclav Smil is his favorite writer. So, um, I find Vaclav Smil to be very balanced, very thoughtful, very serious, very informed. Uh, not, it's, he's not a polemicist in any, in any way on either side. And I would encourage anyone interested in energy transition topics to, uh, to, to read Vaclav Smil. That sounds like a great recommendation, especially if it's Bill Gates' favorite author. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? You know, I think it's very, very difficult to predict. And and the reasons it's difficult to predict is that technology is moving uh, quite quite quickly. There, At the same time, there's tremendous inertia in energy systems and energy infrastructure. And that would argue that it's, this is all going to be very frustratingly slow. At the same time, uh, we have the world's great minds, <laughs> uh, many of the world's great minds focused on helping solve some of these problems. And so if I go back, for example, to, to CCUS, if we can drive down the cost curve in CCUS, pretty dramatically so that government incentives uh, become a smaller and smaller portion of what's required to have successful CCUS projects, then we can, we can uh, abate difficult to abate industries very, very quickly. And so I'm, I'm very loath to say we can do it by 2032 or 2052 or 2082. I think a lot of that is going to depend on, on, uh, technology. It's going to depend on capital. It's going to depend on, you know, political will and and a lot of a lot of other things. One thing that I'm sure of is it's not going to happen at all without the incumbent energy business being right in the middle of it. And that's where that's where we need it to be. Yep, absolutely. And I think the the point on technology is is so important because when you think about something like the shale revolution, it was a very slow slow burn until it wasn't anymore and then it went exponential and right. i think that with the energy transition that is the one thing that there's a lot of doom and gloom and fear and saying we need to we need to do this right now immediately we need to stop all polluting stop all all co2 being released into the atmosphere and i think there is there needs to be a sense of urgency, but there also needs to be an understanding that we we are still kind of chugging along on the bottom of this exponential curve. And the sooner we go exponential, the better. But we also can't give up. We need to just keep moving forward. But we also don't want to just hit the brakes and stop all modern life. It's a dual challenge. And, you know... <laughs> The, the, the incumbent energy business has been talking about this as a dual challenge for probably a decade now. And, and it's a term that many in the environmental community and, and sort of the progressive left don't like because they, they view it as the incumbent industry sort of throwing itself a lifeline and hanging on to something that we really, really need to get rid of. And that's just not the way I see it. And, and the, um, the events of, of these past six months in, in Europe and, and Russia remind us why it is indeed a dual challenge. And by the way, ener energy security matters too. It's not just affordability and, and reliability, it's security. It's, it's being able ultimately to be certain that you have energy supplies that are actually available to keep your society going. Uh, and so all of that, you know, gets mushed into one, you know, big pot of gumbo. Uh, and, and it, it takes, it takes dealing with all of these variables, 
um, simultaneously to to make the world work and to solve this really vexing problem, uh, which is climate change. Yep. Well, the last question, now you actually get to ask me a question. I, I would be interested in, in your work um, to, to hear what you view as the greatest sort of misconception uh, in, in, the, in the public or in the academic community or in the media uh, around, around the energy industry and the energy transition in particular. What do people just get wrong? That is that is a tricky question. I've never been asked that before. I need to think about this for a second. I think the thing that people don't understand is is I guess energy itself. Because when you think about oil and gas and and the energy density within hydrocarbons, there there is so much of it there. And then when you think about solar and wind and even geothermal, the energy density is just so much lower. So the the fact and the the speed and the amount of power being put on is is just difficult to comprehend that that we need so much more energy to replace hydrocarbons and and then on top of that the idea of of your energy always being on when when conceptually you can understand the sun stops shining the wind stops blowing, but ultimately you still want electricity at night. And so there's a a disconnect of we can have these renewables, but logically they they don't really provide the energy you need at night. So I think there's still this just this this misunderstanding of just how much energy and how much hydrocarbons are ingrained into our modern society and how difficult that is going to be to unweave. And in some spots, I think it it is so interwoven that the solution will be CCS. It won't be trying to replace hydrocarbons. It will be learning how to do CCS on a massive scale and in a way that that it can be a long-term sustainable solution. So I think that is, that's probably it. And, and one other thing that, that I gingerly say, I think that energy in general is going to be more expensive in the future. We, we need to accept that fact or we need to find a way to, to reduce the price. But I would, I would venture to say once we can, except the fact that energy is going to cost more, then we can really start pushing towards solutions. Because right now you have this, this um, firewall or this, this blockade saying, I want clean, cheap energy right now, always on. But you're not willing to pay more for it. You're not willing to have it in your backyard. And those two big problems of not willing to pay for it and not willing to have it there right next to you. Like those are, those are hindering the movement. And I think those are challenges that, that we're struggling with. And I think we will continue to struggle with until, until we get past the denial phase of intermittent renewables are, are the solution into accepting the fact that we need to, we need to be willing to pay more and we need to be willing to put solar panels on our houses and and we all need to be willing to make this collective movement as opposed to expecting somebody else to solve the problem. I don't Good know stuff. if that actually stuff. answers yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> it does it does answer my question. I think if I were to sum it up in and one you know one word as to as to what the biggest kind of misunderstanding is, I, I think the answer is chemistry. 
mm. <laughs> uh, and and to to uh, to a lesser degree physics. Uh, and there are inherent challenges in the physical world uh, that are quite different from uh, you know from the challenges associated with microchips and Moore's law, mm. and and th- those challenges are just harder to solve. And they're much more expensive to solve, and they're likely to take much longer to solve. And so that's why, given the nature of the challenge, that we all have to have our shoulder behind the wheel here, uh, and and work together to address it because it's a it's a tough one. Yep, absolutely. Well, Bobby, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Well, uh, th- I would just like to say thank you to you, Joe, and and to um, OGGN and and the work that that you guys do. I, I think um, anyone who's who's working to 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 help the broader public uh, understand the nature of these challenges is is truly doing a public service <laughs> because we're we're only going to get to good solutions and good answers when there's broad-based buy-in and you've, you've touched on some of the obstacles to that broad-based buy-in, but um, part of the solution needs to be education and you are, you're, you're making a, a, a real difference there. So thank you. Well, Bobby, thank you for the kind words and thank you for joining me on the show and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, share this episode with a friend. Doing these quick and easy actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. To hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.